Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Healings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. Look out, Virginia, we're coming your way. Our fourth Boots on the Ground event of the year, the CHF Virginia Art Business Conference, has just been announced for November 7th through 9th. You'll spend three days with artists from all over the country intent on accelerating their careers. That includes two days of art business training designed to get your career to the next level and a day of direct engagement with art industry leaders to envision how everyone in the industry can thrive. Go to clarkhealingsfund.org slash conference to register for your all-access badge. That's clarkhealingsfund.org slash conference. Now, our guest today is Noah Scalen. Noah is an artist based in Richmond, Virginia, whose sculpture, installation, and photography uses everyday items reassembled in new contexts. Imagine, for example, a collage made entirely of kid stickers that shows civil rights activist Ruby Bridges in 1960, leaving her school accompanied by federal marshals. Noah did a major installation in Times Square this winter and is working with the Krauss Gallery in New York City. He's also a corporate consultant at Another Limited Rebellion with his sister Micah Scalen. The firm specializes in using art and creativity in leadership development, and clients include Coke, General Electric, and Intuit. Noah was the first artist-in-residence at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Business and is now an adjunct professor there. Noah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's really good to have you here. And I want to ask you just first, Noah, let's talk for a minute about Virginia, because of course, we're bringing CHF's Art Business Conference there this fall. So I'm naturally curious. You're based in Virginia, but you work internationally. Is it important to stay connected locally? And if if so, why? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I grew up in Richmond and uh, I moved to New York City when I went to college and I stayed up there for work. But when I decided to start my own business as a creative professional, I moved back here to Richmond. And the reason was multifold. But part of it is that a smaller community like this is a place that really is a great uh, incubator, I would say, a place where things are more affordable. It's easier to uh, connect with people, to get publicity, to make things happen. And it's something that allowed me to grow my business where if I was in New York City, where I'd been living, it would have been way more difficult because it was a pretty risky thing that I was doing to start my own company at the time. I like it. So there's some of the benefits uh, of being an artist, not being based in a big city. Is there a downside as well? You know, I guess so, but but you know, I really haven't, <laughs> I guess I haven't found it. I mean, I think you could be like, well, there aren't the biggest galleries, there aren't the, you know, the major things that are, that you could have access to. Uh, but frankly, uh, I just found that, that I could get a lot more done. I've got access to space, access to the press. Uh, you know, if I want to make something happen, I can make it happen here. Oh, man, Noah. Uh, some New Yorker you are, you should have supposed to say the bagels. There's no bagels. Where are you going to get bagels? Fair enough. I do go to New York <laughs> once a month, and I make sure I get a bagel and a slice. There you go. Exactly. So the bagels and the pizza. I was going there next. <laughs> if you didn't like bagels, I'm going to be like, all right, fine. Where's, where's the pizza then? Well, so, and I guess yeah. I would say, you know, it's about a balance, too. Like, I, if I never went back to New York, I'd be pretty sad. But I go there on a regular basis for work. And so it allows me to have that, you know, reminder of what I like about it and also reminder about why I'm glad I don't live there anymore. Well, it's good to touch the Blarney Stone anyway. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you this. Uh, what What's happening in the art world in Virginia that you think people should know about? Well, I mean, I can't speak for all of Virginia, but Richmond is the capital city, and it's a really amazing place. There's a, a, a great art scene that's been thriving for a long time, but in the last 20 years, it's just really exploded. We have a beautiful First Fridays that lots of people come out to. The Virginia Museum of Fine Arts has an incredible collection, brings in amazing shows. We're about to get a Kendi Wiley sculpture installed right outside, which is really exciting. 
Uh, we've got the Virginia Museum of History and Culture that was, you know, sort of more of a staid kind of old stuff museum that wasn't very exciting. And now they've really taken things to another level. They invited me and a bunch of other artists to come in and paint murals inside the museum as part of an exhibition. Um, the Valentine Museum, another place that was a history museum that could seem kind of boring, has really been doing progressive work and really making some exciting things. So there's just a lot of opportunities to, to see art, to make art, to show art. There's great uh, opportunities for people to learn about art. And, and it's, and it's a, an art school, which I, I, how am I not saying this? VCU is in the center of town. Uh, the art school is the top, one of the top ranks in the country. And so constantly bringing in great teachers and also uh, you know, training great students and letting them out into the city. So the city just really whether or not everyone recognizes it, I think we've got a lot more people recognizing that it's a, a, a creative city that is really, uh, for the East Coast, a really a hot spot. Well, now, you know, you went, uh, we're talking about an art school, but, you know, let's switch the topics for a second to uh, business schools. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think many business schools have artists in residence. So I'm curious, how did that come about at Virginia Commonwealth University? Yeah, well, I like to say that I was, you know, not only was I the first artist in residence at the VCU School of Business, but possibly the first artist in residence at any school of business anywhere, or at least in the United States. There may be one other out there. I haven't heard about it. Um, what happened is that a few years ago, the school realized that creativity was one of the, the principles that they needed to be teaching their students to be successful in business. And that's a pretty radical idea, but it's also backed up by a lot of data. And what happened is, is that I had been talking to them about a variety of things because of the work I've been doing, had already been doing for years as a consultant in the corporate world as an artist. And that's also pretty rare. And so talking to them, some of the people, the leadership there about that, and they came around and said, hey, you know, this is one of our pillars. We want to start this program. Uh, we'd love to do an artist in residence program. We'd like you to be the very first one. And I said, yeah, this is a perfect fit for me. I love this idea. I'd, I'd taught for years in, in the School of the Arts. I uh, was comfortable in that setting, but, you know, school of business, I was like, I didn't go to business school. I don't know anything about this, but I do know about how the artist's skill set is valuable in business. So, yeah, let's do this. And uh, it was great because because it was the first time I was able to go in and, and bring in all this stuff I already had learned and this methodology that my company had already developed and my sister and I had developed and bring that to them. And it was a really great fit. And it allowed them to show right away the value of bringing an artist into a business setting. And, yeah, it was terrific. So your work background uh, was more visual art then and, and not so much a background in the corporate world. Have I got that right? Yeah, I, I studied theater design. And then when I got out of school, I switched to graphic design. And I worked for other folks for a few years doing that and then started my own company doing that. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, Another Limited Rebellion. First, interesting name, but I'm wondering, you know, what inspired you and your sister Micah, uh, sister Micah to develop the company? Sure. So the company originally was formed as my own graphic design studio. So when I got out of school, I started freelancing and I created a company to do that. And then after about six years of working for other people, I shifted to running my business full time, which is when I made the shift from New York back to Richmond. Uh, so the company for a long time was just that design firm. And then I had just done that work for a long enough time. It was about a dozen years when I burned out and I was not as interested in it and sort of felt stuck in my career. And so I ended up doing this project called Scala Day where I got myself out of my creative rut and inspired again. And the, one of the really strange outcomes from that was that I started getting asked to talk to businesses about my creative practice. And so that turned into me doing a side job uh, initially of going and doing these 
keynote talks and consulting. And all of a sudden I found myself, you know, really enjoying that work. And my sister who was working in marketing up in New York, she was working for uh, different media companies. She had decided she wanted to get out of that and run a business. And so she came to me and said, Hey, I see you like doing this. I want to take helm of a business here. How can we work together? Can I develop this concept? Uh, and I said, absolutely. And so we created a partnership, took my existing company and shifted it over to being a consultancy. So we're talking with Noah Scalen about uh, his firm, Another Limited Rebellion, which specializes in using art and creativity in leadership development. Uh, Noah, how do corporations decide they need an artist to come in and work with their staff? Good question. So it usually starts with a person of vision within the company, somebody who has recognized that creativity is one of the top skills that leadership needs to survive the fourth industrial revolution. This is people who are saying, hey, we need constant innovation. These are people who are saying there's massive disruption in our industry. Uh, we've been running this business a long way, this, this one way, and now things have changed so much that we've got to find new directions. Usually they've got great really successful people working for them, but those people weren't trained to uh, respond to the new situation they're in. So they're basically going, gee, there's this set of skills they're missing. Um, so usually there's somebody there who's sort of going, we need something. And then as is the case with a lot of business, it's word of mouth. And so people say, hey, you know what? You got to talk to these guys. They really changed our minds about how creativity works. Um, and, and that's when we get the call. So, you know, I think any of us that have had a corporate background, even if it was sort of a cursory relationship, you know, we've been there for a couple of years, um, we have an idea of what we think professional development looks like. Uh, and some people think it's a fun way to get out of work and some people think, oh no, uh, and it's kind of dreaded and other people got something valuable, but, uh, but clue us in, what would a day of professional development look like at Coke or Intuit when you and your team get there? Is it different from the stereotypical and mostly perhaps dreaded professional development, like a high ropes, uh, or a, an improv course? Yeah, well, I think a lot of those courses that when, when it's more of the sort of funky, unusual thing, it's usually presented as team building and less about leadership development. And so one of the things we do to distinguish ourselves is, is the place we're in is, is usually reaching people at a different tier and with a different uh, goal in mind. And so that type of development, professional development, is actually usually very dry. It's a lot of times people coming in and lecturing uh, for long periods of time, people uh, taking sort of personality tests and, and doing all this very intensive work. Um, and so we're usually the most unusual thing that comes into that space. A lot of times when an artist or creative person gets brought into a business setting, they're really being brought in to be show off their talent and, and be like, look at how fun this is. This is this cool thing. Maybe they're having a happy hour and you're going to play your guitar. You're going to, you know, do your funny thing. And and yes, I would say improv is the, is the sort of category that's been the most embraced or storytelling. Um, but generally that, you know, outside of that, especially with visual artists or artists that bring other um, uh, skills to the table, they're not really utilized for their, the set of tools they have. It's more about sort of appreciating, you know, people appreciating um, what they can do, but it doesn't always translate into this leadership skill development. And that's really where we reside. Uh, so to, to say where we come in and we do this, it's more about presenting a, something really unusual. And the benefit to that is that people do come in with a preconceived notion about what they're going to get from these experiences. And there's a lot of crossed arms in some cases or people who are like kind of ready to check out or, or, or think it's just this fun free day and they're going to have a just goof off or something. And, and uh, they find out pretty quickly that's not the case. And because we're presenting such an unusual story, people pay attention and we usually can get inside their heads and sort of plant some seeds that they've needed to hear for a while and maybe the opportunity to start 
seeing things uh, differently and behaving differently. I'd love to be a, a fly on the wall in those settings, you know, having spent uh, more than a decade in Fortune 500 life. Yeah. You know, I think what I'm hearing you say is you're you're not competing with the scavenger hunt, but you're competing with the bullets of a PowerPoint. Absolutely. And so, um, I like that because it's a low bar. I mean, you know, it doesn't take much to to do better than the bullets of a PowerPoint, uh, but if but it takes a, a lot to sort of push it the other way and uh, and make it actually interesting instead of just a little bit better. So let me ask you about the the tangible side of it then. Uh, do, do the companies you work with see measurable results? And if so, what are the metrics and what are they hoping to achieve? So I, I appreciate you asked that. And obviously you do have that corporate background because we get asked all the time about this. And what's important is that one of the talks I do is actually called uh, the ROI of creativity. And what I talk to people about is, is that, you know, business wants to do this measurement and wants to have these numbers and wants to be like, what's the benefit of this? And it's really a narrow view of what we're talking about. And so what we generally do is have people think bigger and say, you know, creativity isn't this thing you sprinkle on at the end, but like, you know, the sprinkles on top of the, of the cake that you don't really need, but it kind of makes it look nice. Creativity in terms of the work we're doing is creative culture. And ultimately, this is like you know, individual development. This is what allows a company to survive the next five years. And so if you're going, do I get a 20% increase? You know, am I going to make more money off this? Is my employee going to be this much better? Then you're not, you're missing the bigger picture, which is that, you know, do you want to be, do you want to still exist as a company or not? Because the the bedrock, uh, and maybe that's the wrong term, because I, I always say the fertile ground, the sort of soil uh, that you need to be able to create consistent innovation is creativity. And that's something that people have discounted in the business world. Uh, and so I think that's where they come to it with that sort of give me some numbers here so I can prove it to my boss. And what we really need is people experiencing it so they can go, wow, I now come at things differently and I know that's going to change uh, the outcome. But it's long term change because we're talking about uh, creative culture. That's stuff that, you know, culture change. It doesn't happen in a, a year. You know, it happens over many years, uh, which is a tough sell for people. You know, if you're trying to say buy our services, they want to see immediate results. Um, so mostly we show people the success of what we've been doing in terms of large corporations like GE bringing us back year after year after year because they see the benefit internally for the work we do. And that's a good selling point for people to say, okay, this is valuable. You know, I, I as you, you say that, uh, I can't help but picture one or two people. I mean, one doesn't have to go very far. You can, you know, hop on over to D.C. on the train and, and stare at the White House and get this kind of uh, thing. But I, I, I've worked with people who, if it wasn't uh, an immediate, you know, sort of hand to mouth number uh, that they could get their head around, if it didn't immediately bring up the close rate of the guys on the phone, then it, it wasn't of value. Uh, and the, I think uh, at that point, I wonder uh, whether you drop the prospective client or, or um, you, you decide that you're not working with a person of enough stature or a high enough level that they can understand the, the significance of economic uncertainty, the impact of it on a company. And as you sort of describe it, the need to have creative solutions already sort of in the pipeline stewing by the time you reach uh, your next rough patch <laughs> where where that uncertainty becomes unbearable. Yeah, no, I mean, you you nailed it on the head. I mean, we, we have to work, like I say, I always see leadership of vision. We have to have people that are high enough up who get this, who bring in, who get the value. And sometimes we encounter people lower down who are like, we love what you do, we want to bring you in, but they can't sell it up. And when we come in and talk to an audience that's not the right audience and we could see it right away that they're like, this sounds great, but we don't have buy-in from management or we don't have buy-in from leadership and it's not going to work. Um, so I would say it's it's top down, you know, bottom up 
both, but you got to have the top for sure. Um, you can't just bring it in from the bottom level and try to push it up. So it's not for everybody, um, but it is for the smart companies, frankly, who go, oh, right, you know, this is the future. And what I talked to them is, is about is sustainable innovation. And, they, and the people that need that and know what that is, they're on board. I love that. That's a, a good point for everyone uh, selling in a, a B2B capacity um, in the first place, who you have to have on board. But it also reminds me of uh, this book by Earl Jabay called The God Players, uh, where they were talking about, you know, we tend to identify the areas of pride in a company. Pride creates all the bottlenecks. Pride creates all the inefficiencies. And where a company is too prideful to let go of its pride, uh, they go out of existence. And the, the ones that uh, the ones that are smart, uh, they open up uh, and they only deal with, with businesses that are on the ropes and know they have some kind of problems. So they have a pretty good track record of saying, his consulting firm does, pretty good track record of, I think it's based in Norway, of saying, uh, you know, uh, those companies that uh, listened to us and took our advice are still here and those that didn't aren't. <laughs> so I love that. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea that it's smart people that it, it means that you're sort of, I think the takeaway for an artist is know who you're going after and know who isn't going to be a fit and know who you have to win to make it happen. Yes. And I mean, to be fair, I get it's hard. And I, you know, ran my own company for a long time, did freelance work for a long time. And when you're, when you're desperate for work, it's really hard to say no or to, to sort of see these opportunities go by. What can I do differently? How could I capture them? And, and to be at a level where you can trust what you do, know that you're, what you offer is valuable and, and hold out for the right people is always worth it because you make the space that allows the good stuff to come in rather than filling it with stuff that's not good. Well, and from a sales strategy uh, standpoint, uh, you know, one of the key practice areas that we work with artists on, you, you tend to spend 90% of your sales activities selling the most resistant customers versus um, the customers that um, are really more of a fit or the easier sales sometimes. I don't mean that there's not a, still a sales cycle and you don't have to do the work, uh, but I mean that, uh, you know, sometimes uh, the ones that don't get it, that aren't a fit, your desperation doesn't help. It just creates more work and, and drains the company. But, you know, um, to switch gears a little bit, you and Micah have trained 12 artists for the Speakers Bureau. Um, and part of the training was about learning to talk about their work, um, which always comes up in our sales strategy conversations at the Clark Healings Fund. And we have artists, of course, as a primary audience that are actually listening right now. Um, how can they talk more effectively about their work? Or is that too broad a question? Well, I guess I can talk about to our experience doing that. So one of the things that happened, right, was that I had a lot of success talking about my story and sharing that. And we realized we were hitting a point where we needed more artists who would be available for follow-up or additional gigs or gigs where I was already booked. And it's something we discovered quickly is that, you know, there's artists get all the uh, asked all the time to speak about their work, but they haven't been trained to do that. And the language that we use as artists um, in, you know, a school setting or with, you know, with other artists is different than what you need to use in a business setting. And so first of all, understanding that audience that you're you know, talking to, what, what are they looking to learn? Uh, how can we make connections between what we've learned and what they are trying to develop within themselves? There's a tons to connect. I mean, that's the bonus is that they're really desperate for what we've got. Um, the reason that my company is doing well is because we've basically realized that artists were taught to be innovative in school and that's the skills that we've got honed and business people haven't. And so 
there's this great exchange now that we're able to do, um, but they've got to be able to hear it. And so if you come in and start really getting down to you know, details that don't mean anything to them and that confuse them, right, you've lost that audience. And so what are the, you know, the, first of all, they don't feel like they can do this stuff at all. So, you know, you're starting off with something that they feel very uncomfortable with, and that can be hard to get through to people who feel like this is not for me. And so part of it is just sort of finding that point of connection. How are we the same? What do we have in common? What are the things that are familiar? Yes, I'm telling you about this kind of art, but what about that process was challenging? What did I learn? People want to learn that. And, it, and they're happy. You know, this is why people watch videos of all kinds of stuff, you know, online of just people talking about their process is interesting to people. And a lot of times we forget that and we just want to talk about our success or just show our work. And that's really not as important as letting people into the process. Yeah, I really like that. You know, we spend a, a lot of time talking and uh, there's a course uh, in the CHF digital campus that I taught called Sales Mentality Conversations and Culture. And the idea of finding common ground, finding the point that we share and sort of getting aligned with uh, a shared bigger vision of the world or of our objectives uh, I don't think there's a way to sell without it, really. There's a way to sort of talk somebody into something, but I, I don't think there's a way to sell effectively, consistently, and honorably. And so uh, we spend quite a bit of time on that. I want to um, switch gears as we go into the second segment of the show and uh, ask you a little bit about creativity as a force, because we're starting to see this as a trend. You know, we're starting to see that political and business groups and uh, civic and uh, community groups are pulling artists onto boards and pulling them into discussions that, you know, traditionally, at least for the last uh, 20, 30 years, they've been left out of or not specifically included in. We're even seeing a change in the commercial world where fashion designers are bringing on artists in droves. And um, we're seeing that, you know, people turn to artists because either they believe they have a different mindset or a different perspective, or um, they just f function a different way in response to problems. And all of that is exciting. But you've said that creativity is not the icing, it's the flower. Tell me what that means. And is that a case that you have to make to corporate clients? I think it is a case that we have to make in the corporate world. I think that, uh, you know, even people who are on board still push back a bit about oh, creativity is that wacky thing. And it's that thing that, that, you know, isn't really necessary. And we can, we can sort of let it go and, and, oh, maybe it's only for certain people or maybe only for certain people can do it. And so generally my first engagement with any organization is getting people on the same page, uh, explaining some language and, and talking about the real value of it. Because once people get that creativity is a, a fundamentally human trait that everyone has the capacity for, it's not unique to artists, and B, it's 100% necessary if you're going to move forward uh, and deal with the, the challenges of the day and the challenges that are only going to grow as an organization. And once people get that, those two pieces, then we can move forward. Um, so really what I'm doing is, you know, sharing the artist story, artists as, as, you know, creative individuals and who use their creativity uh, very well on a consistent basis, but not as the owners of creativity. And, you know, there's an important thing to distinguish for those folks in the business world that, you know, we're not, I am asking them to engage in some of the art tools and the art skills, but I'm not asking them to necessarily become artists. They can, but that's not what this is about. I want them to learn from our practices why and how to do this work and how to develop that creativity within themselves in service of the success in their work, but also personally as well. I mean, we, you know, our work is always a mixture of those two. Ultimately, there's a lot of personal development going on in this organizational development work we do. 
So is there a recipe for creativity, something that we can standardize and at, maybe not in the sense of cooking it innately into our DNA, but perhaps to elicit or bring it out? Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, so we have a, we have a motto at our, my, our company that we say, basically, creativity is a practice. That's our simple concept that people can grasp and we can talk about that, hey, if we accept that it's not a talent, but a skill, you can develop it. And from wherever you're at, you have a capacity. We know this from human history that there is within all of us this, this seed of creativity. We can grow it from where we are to wherever else we need it to be. You may not have a propensity for drawing or dancing or making music, but that doesn't matter. This is a different thing. And the way that you develop it is like any other skill, you practice it. And so we basically introduce people to very basic exercises and we have them do it repetitively. It's, it's iterative. Uh, I always say creativity is not a bone, it's a muscle. Because people always say, I don't have a creative bone in my body. And so I say, don't worry about it, right? You got muscles, this is what we're talking about. And you, you get it, like people get that like, gee, I haven't gone to the gym, so I don't feel, I get why I'm not strong and, and I, you know, I know what I need to do to do that. And so we want people to feel the same way about creativity, that you shouldn't feel bad if you don't feel creative or you don't feel like you have the capacity for it. Um, but even if you do, like here we are talking to artists, you know, I always, I, I always talk about the, the, the Olympics, you know, that like an Olympic medalist isn't, you know, somebody who's just the top of their game doesn't stop practicing. They're not like, hey, now that I'm good at this, I don't need to ever go swimming again or lift a weight again. No, they're, they're doing it more. And so artists, Similarly, we encounter people who are like, well, you know, this is for these business people. And we're like, no, it's really for everybody because I, I, as an artist, learned it by doing it and discovering that when I got stuck, I needed to go back to the gym and do my creative workout as well. That, you know, it's really intense in school. But once you're out in the working world, most jobs don't give you a chance to really develop your creativity. You, you're, you're expected to bring that to the table and have it there. And even now in the business world, when they're asking executives to be creative, they're not training them. They're just going, all right start doing this, be creative, creative problem solve. And, and they're like, I don't know how to do that. I'm not good at that. And it's not fair. You know, I was listening to the uh, Democratic debates last night and they were talking about, um, it was uh, Mayor de Blasio actually <laughs> that uh, uh, spoke up sort of toward the end and, and said, look, we have, we have to correct something here. We have a culture that believes the wrong thing. Um, you, you've, the Rust Belt jobs, the manufacturing industrial jobs uh, have gone away, are still going away, are largely going to go away. But um, immigrants didn't do that to you. Um, large corporations did. They exported the jobs. Uh, and then the other beat that was sort of um, missing there is that many of them were going away anyway because of automation. Absolutely. So ultimately, automation it's inevitable. You can't stop it. You can't ask us to roll back science, but but automation is ultimately going to ensure that uh, even if the job is local and not exported, it still goes away. Yeah. And so you have a video on uh, the Another Limited Rebellion site that deals with creative professionals having something uniquely human to offer that can't be replaced by automation. And not to single out uh, creative professionals alone. I think that's potentially true everywhere. Um, uh, there are restaurants I go to where I'd rather have an automated server <laughs> and an automated chef, uh, but I try not to eat at those places. They have Yelp ratings of under three, and I, you know, at, at most of the places I go, I'm really glad there's human beings involved. So um, tell me, what is that uniquely human thing that creative professionals offer, and do you think uh, people are uh, ready to hear about it? I think they are because, to your point, right, like, 
anybody in any industry right now is seeing some form of automation coming into play. Uh, and certainly with advances in AI, it's going to be, you know, an entirely different world we live in very soon. Science fiction is becoming fact very quickly. And, and it can be really scary. I mean, there's articles I've read that were like half of all jobs will be gone in 20 years. In 40 years, every job that exists today will be gone. That's the scary, depressing version. I think it doesn't have to be bad because it can be that all those jobs are replaced by jobs we've never even imagined. But certainly the jobs that are going to go last are going to be the ones that require people to uh, create a problem solving, come up with unique new ideas. Computers can sort of spit out these things, but even when they do, even when they're using automation for creating music, there's still a human having to make decisions about aesthetics and about, uh, you know, the thing that, that stands out in some way that's worth deciphering from that work that computers are doing. Um, I've read about, you know, computers writing novels in the future, and I'm sure to some degree it'll happen. Um, so that, that can, stuff can be very scary, but again, what makes us human? What is it about us that's unique? And that's our storytelling ability. It's our ability to create unexpected connections between things. It's not about the logical stuff. It's not about the numbers. It's not about the, the linear stuff. It's the nonlinear stuff. And that's the magic of our brains that just, you know, we can pull two completely random things and put them together. And like you said, you know, stickers and Ruby bridges. I don't, you know, I don't think a computer's coming up with that anytime soon. Let me ask you one more question, and then we'll, we'll move on to the, the final segment of the show. Um, I wonder, uh, do you think there's something that people need to do to get sort of culturally ready for both the prevalence of automation, but also for the resilience of the creative professional in the face of it? Hmm. I'm not sure if I, I know the answer to that question exactly. I will say that from the work I'm doing, what I'm seeing is that we need to, and this is what you were bringing up the sort of cultural issue, right? Which is that America, especially, de has devalued the artist and and certainly art education, especially in um, the you know primary education. And we see it with the prevalence of of STEM being you know something that people focused on. And now we're getting some interest in and focus around STEAM, this adding of A and the arts to it. But it's still not prioritized. And for me to see it in the business world, that here's people that are successful executives going, gee, we really need these skills. And so for me to watch that go backwards, right? Okay, I'm going to teach it in college, but then it needs to be taught in high school, it needs to be taught in middle school, it needs to be taught in elementary school. And so really it's about like parents thinking about their children's success in the future and saying, we've got to advocate for these kids to get, you know, art classes again. Um, there's a great book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, and and uh, the, the author talks about this in the introduction that, you know, Learning to draw right now is, is sort of this sort of bonus that some people are encouraged to do, especially if the, again, that there's sort of a penalty for it. Um, but she's saying, you know, it's like we would never teach reading the way we teach drawing. Would we like feel like this? If you don't look at a book, is that interesting to you? No, then never mind, right? The reason you learn to read is because it's a necessity, but also the reason you learn math is not because you're going to be a mathematician, and the reason you learn art is not because you're going to be an artist, but because of it, how it creates uh, neural pathways, how you think. And this form of thinking is unique and special and different. And so what I love is seeing these businesses that do have a lot of power recognizing it. And I'm hoping they'll use that power to advocate, certainly, for a you know, shift in our educational system. But everybody needs to be uh, doing that. And every arts organization already is to some capacity. But having it uh, be seen as valued outside of the art world is really important. We're talking with Noah Scalen of Another Limited Rebellion. And uh, Noah, I can't help but 
feel like uh, somewhere there's a J. Evans Pritchard that is saying, no, uh, <laughs> you can measure poetry. I'm telling you, <laughs> there's a graph for that. Uh, but in any case, uh, I want to ask you, you know, like many professional artists, you have more than one skill set. So you're also back in your own studio, as I understand it, and applying your creativity to your own art career. Is that so? And if so, what is that like? I am. And I, I, I often tell people uh, there's a Venn diagram in my head about sort of my own success in my life. And that's where I'm, I'm trying to have these two circles, one of which is um, consulting slash teaching, educating in some capacity uh, as one circle and then art making as another circle. And, and my goal is to push those two together and overlap as much as possible. And so our company uh, that we created is is done in service of teaching these things to other people, but also supporting our ability as artists to continue making art, because really the insights we've discovered and share with people come from our own process. And we want to continue to practice that and grow our own abilities and then in turn share that back out with the organizations we work with. So it's a, it's a, it's a continual give and take. It's a Ouroboros, right? It's going around and around. Um, but that's really sort of what we're, we're very intentionally doing. So what I love is being able to prioritize art making and my own discovery process and practice and getting, you know, to a different level because there's those new discoveries are things that are valuable for me as well as for others when I share them. So I'm curious, do you, do you think there are skills from your consulting career that um, carry over and help you with your own work? Or instead, are there areas where you actually have to compartmentalize? Hmm. I think, I think a little of both, right? I think that it can be very easy. I'm the type of person who likes to check boxes and get things done, and which means I tend to prioritize the wrong stuff because the big stuff is, is harder and takes longer. And so I can spend a day doing email and not get anything done on creative work because I'm, it's that sort of quick satisfaction, that sort of endorphin hit. Um, so there's, there's that tendency you know, to recognize, like, I've got to really be careful about this because I'm running a business, so I need to you know, prioritize that work. Uh, but not let it overtake. And so I've been very careful about scheduling and saying only these days, only these hours, this is when this work gets done. Um, but conversely, the work I've done as a corporate consultant is what's allowed me to codify the things I learned as an artist and then in turn apply them more rigorously and in, um, intentionally. And that's really been interesting because I can now say, hey, I'm frustrated or stuck here. Ah, I'll use this skill that I learned. And my sister and I always are like, oh, right, we should apply these principles. We teach people all the, all the time. But, you know, it can, you can easily forget to apply them to yourself. And so it's great to go, oh, our stuff works. Of course it works. Let's use it for ourselves. And then find that success from it is really great. Were there certain pivotal decisions that have helped build your art career? I mean, you know, obviously Skull of Day would be the big thing because that's what really transformed me. I'd always been an artist. My our, my sister and my parents are artists. We've been around the art world, uh, you know, done creative work our whole lives. Um, so it's really something that is is innate to us. And I actually, you know, what? I just lost my train of thought. What was the question again? I'm sorry. Well, I'm asking, and I, I guess I should have... Um better characterized it. Uh, I knew as I was inventing that question on the fly, I wasn't doing a good job. Yeah. So, uh, so we both lost it. Uh, so uh, it's hot. I know it's hot in Virginia, but it's it hot in New York, <laughs> Noah. So I'm just sitting here frying, but that's all right. Uh, anyway, uh, for artists, wherever you are, I hope you're cooler than both of us. So uh, we have to turn off our air conditioners so you can't hear them in yeah. the background. Um, so I'm, I'm asking if there were some pivotal business decisions, more specifically, um, that have helped you build your art career. Ooh, pivotal business decisions. 
this is something I feel like I'm going to need to think on. Um, I guess what the point I was trying to make, though, is that I did this Stella Day project where really I had felt extremely stuck in my uh, creative practice, in my business. I had plateaued. And, and so I did this thing that seemed very random to make art daily for myself. It seems like the most uh, left field thing that wouldn't directly give me the benefits I needed from a financial standpoint, from a, you know, in terms of the goals I had in my life. And yet it hundred percent achieved that and then achieved like a thousand percent more other stuff. And so it's one of those things where it's like trusting your gut and doing this thing that was purely about expressing myself was so much more beneficial than if I had tried to be more, you know, intentional in some other very prescribed way that was like, you know, reading this business book and following this plan. Um, it's not to say that there weren't other things I've done later in terms of just being like, hey, be really rigorous about getting contracts and make sure that people, you know, you follow up with people and, and respond to emails quickly or whatever. All that's true. But if you want sort of the bigger, more profound thing, it was that, you know, I had this crazy uh, idea and I followed through on it. And it was the work that I did on that idea that gave me all these other opportunities. Um, so that's a tough one when you, you know, I think about all the time when people put up books of like, I'm successful and here's my success story, that it's impossible to, to, to replicate their story as much as it is when I share mine, especially when I talk to college students and, you know, they want to hear about how to get, have success and get out of the school and, and move forward with their dreams. And to say like, there is no magic plan other than a trust your gut. Uh, you know, if you like something, you're going to find an audience who likes it. B, um, to, uh, practice being open to the things that happen to you because the opportunities are there, but are you creating your, you know, are you cultivating a, an acceptance of the random things that appear as, as, as possible benefits, or are you seeing them as negatives? Like, that's not what I wanted to do. That's not where I want to go and missing the really great opportunities because they can be extremely random. Um, and my path is very circuitous. And then to be on the other side of it, I can look back and see a, a straight line back to where I started. But when I was facing those decisions, it was infinite branching. Well, I, I think on one level, there is a template for career success, but it, it's not the one everybody wants, uh, which is you got to know the right people or you got to get written up in the New York Times. I think, you know, one of the, the practice areas we have at the Clark Healings Fund is called the career blueprint. Um, but it's about blueprinting your own personal career. And while there are some commonalities between artists that have been successful, it's partly about reverse engineering your goal and breaking down the life that you you want to have. And even if nothing else happens, uh, which is not the experience we have, but but even if nothing else happened, that's a valuable exercise. And I think along those lines, what you've talked about, um, doing something funky and creative that uh, keeps you in your uh, creative space, certainly something that your book on creative sprints uh, kind of deals with. But it reminds me, you know, in my own area of art creation, which is which is writing and fiction, uh, I did something similar. I called it Nightly Chops. You know, it's kind of based on jazz, but the idea was 30 stories in 30 days to make sure that I could express or show my chops. And uh, it was some work, but man, did it keep my head in the game. I really liked it. So what you're talking about at the at the more visceral level is uh, making sure your head's in the game, and I, I would say that is a prerequisite for <laughs> for success uh, is to have your head in the game. Just like if you were a professional, uh, if you were an NFL player, sure. But you know, uh, well, and I think they talk about like the success in sports of you know when they make that basket or you get that goal. Like how many times did they try and didn't get it? Right, we don't count those, and so you know uh, that kind of a practice like you did or I would I do 
Well, really, you know, what I would say is like, it's just making more stuff and especially the process we use, which is do something and then reflect on it and share that with other people as the next step, that that process, especially making more things and putting more things in the world gives you more opportunities, just it's sheer numbers. You know, if you do want something you measure, that's what it is. Like the more you put out, the more opportunities you get for something to come back. And so it's more quantity over quality thing, which can be terrifying to people because, you know, everybody or a lot of people are concerned about the quality. Certainly in my corporate work, that's everybody's concern. And so to say, hey, yes, but at least when we talk about process, we want to, we want you to work on quantity because that's when it's going to give you more opportunities. And so really that, I guess, would be the principle behind the work I was doing with my project and what I do recommend to people. That's true about sales as well. Um, there's a book I saw recently. Um, I don't plan to read it because I think I got the premise uh, really quickly uh, off the jacket. Sorry to the publisher, but uh, it's called something like Relentless Prospecting. <laughs> and uh, the point is the, the prize goes to the person that does a lot of it, puts themselves yeah. out there and yeah. consistently gets exposed uh, because they put themselves out there. Um, they make the contacts, the connections and the things that are necessary, even if not every one of them, uh, or even if not the majority of them hit, uh, uh, the person that does it consistently uh, tends to land. Yeah. But you know, speaking of that, um, you've got more than 11,000 followers on Instagram. And I'm curious about that. Um, has that, I would, I want to ask you three questions. How, how did that happen? Has the platform lived up to the hype uh, and do you sell instantly uh, or, or sell directly on Instagram? Um, or, or is it for some other purpose that helps your career? Well, a lot of questions packed in there. So it happened organically. Um, I kind of got a little bit late in the game in Instagram. I was on a lot of other platforms for a long time, but I really liked how visual the medium was. And I liked, you know, that it's very much just about image and sharing. It's certainly great for visual artists. Um, the audience grew because I was sharing, you know, what I liked and they liked it too. Uh, it, but it really jumped in some leaps and bounds when some people who were extremely popular, some very, very big sites would share some of my artwork. And then immediately I would get a giant bump after that, um, which is daunting because those people expect to see more of whatever they saw. And I'm just, I'm a very eclectic uh, person when it comes to my artwork and even when I was sharing. The platform has changed a lot over the years and so now it uh, definitely is more of a portfolio site than it was at one point when I was sharing things that interest me. The stories have sort of taken on that place to get granular about it. Um, I have done a little bit of direct sales on it. I really haven't created, I just haven't had the time to focus on it. I'm, it's, it's a goal for me though, to, to think about, you know, leveraging that audience. They're there anyway, so what can I do with them? They interest in my work, they want to buy it, but what's the price point that makes sense? What's the effort that makes sense? Uh, so I'm going to end up engaging with somebody to have them really help me figure out uh, that piece. But in the short term, it's really just a portfolio. Um, it's out there all the time, 24-7 doing the work for me. You know, it used to be my web, my blog, my website. People don't go to those in the way that they discover stuff. And I do get opportunities through it. People find my work that way and they say, hey, I saw this really cool. Can I commission you? Or could you come speak or whatever? And it, it, it like a lot of other things, uh, like publishing your work or anything else, it, it gives you some validity that then gives you opportunities. Uh, so there's there's definite value in it. I think it can be easily overvalued and you can spend too much time on it. And so you do want to be really careful with any social media or any marketing that like you're getting the benefit from the effort you put into it uh, because it can certainly quickly turn into a time suck. And I've experienced that before where I've spent more time promoting than making and then suddenly I don't have another thing to promote because I haven't made anything. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, wow, that was good. You answered all the questions. I um, I do think that sometimes people uh, turn Instagram into a distraction uh, as a form of sort of avoidance behavior. You know, we'll find somebody that has a strategy to uh, to sell to interior designers or something, and and you ask how many phone calls they made this week, and the answer is uh, none uh, yet. But if you ask how many posts they put on Instagram, the the answer is oh, I have increased it a lot since we talked about it. <laughs> talked about selling to designers. How many designers have you interacted with? And and so it, be, it can become kind of a a uh, a way a placebo or a panacea for for doing the work. But on 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 the other side of that, some people are getting the exposure if they do it intelligently and are getting and are making sales. So I'm glad to hear that you're going to be investigating a a strategic way to do it. Um, in a related. Uh, uh, topic, you know, that's social media. Uh, I want to ask you about PR um, because from the list on your website, it looks like you've been able to generate a, a steady amount of press about your art over the last 10 years. How did that come about? Uh, fairly organically, again, I mean, I think I'm very intentional about marketing I, my work. I mean, it's certainly when I started doing shows, I would send press releases out a little more in the formal way. It's a little more informal now. I've seen a, a sort of a shift happen around that. Uh, but, you know, telling people to write about your work or certainly, I mean, asking people, but encouraging people to write and share your work uh, is a good strategy because you, I think people assume like, well, if they like it, they'll do that. But people a lot of times assume that you've already got the success if you, if it looks like you have it or, or, you know, that you've got what you want. And so being very clear about asking for things is good. Uh, and so certainly at the beginnings, I did a lot more of that. And I shared, I would, you know, if it was a online site, I would, I would intentionally send them the link and say, please write about this. I think you'll find it interesting. It didn't work every time, but sometimes it would. And then those, a lot of times those people would turn into people who were following me. So when I post something new, they go ahead and share it. I don't have to ask them. Um, and then, of course, if you're working with larger institutions or organizations, they're hopefully doing some marketing work for you and using their press contacts and you're getting those opportunities. But it's never doesn't mean you shouldn't shouldn't do it yourself anyway, because I've also experienced those situations where you assume, well, you're a big organization, you should be promoting this and they don't do a good job of it. Um, so marketing is always your job as well. Uh, and you should never feel bad about promoting the things you're doing. Um, I often tell people, no, turn it around and think about what's what do you dislike how you know how often is somebody emailing you and you're like gosh i hate hearing from this person what's the right amount you know you're going to know it by your own experience um, but it's generally more than you're probably doing right now is, is you could do could be doing well sort of following this thread on uh marketing channels uh as well as sales channels um so we talked a little bit about social we talked uh, about uh, uh publicity I want to ask you about uh, the gallery as a sales channel. And so I just have a couple of questions before we go ahead and wind down the show. Um, number one, you're working with uh, the Krauss Gallery in New York. How does a partnership with a gallery play into your overall business strategy um, it, you know, as an artist? Yeah, I think you have to think of uh, making money as an artist as sort of a multi-stream thing. And so there's several different ways to do it, one of which is gallery sales. Um, but it's interesting because obviously when you're partnering with a gallery, it's a partnership, right? They are investing in you and you are making a commitment to them and they're giving them a large chunk of money from your sales, but they also are trying to develop an audience and understand what that audience needs are. It's a lot, it reminded me a lot of being a designer uh, when I was a graphic designer with this sort of relationship you have with clients. So it's a very specific relationship. It, it can be satisfying and worthwhile if you've got 
uh, find somebody who trusts you and encourages you and they see that they're getting sales and they like the work you're producing, but it's, it's definitely a thing you put time and effort into developing. And it takes a lot of time to prepare shows, a lot of work. And then that work sits there. And if it doesn't sell, it's a lot of work getting it back or moving into the next place. And then you've got bodies of work you got to move around. Uh, it's certainly a lot easier to have somebody commission you and make a piece and give it to them or to get a, uh, a large scale commission and, you know, focus on spend time, focus on that, getting paid ahead of time, or at least partially ahead of time. It's, that's a big deal. Um, so a gallery is a very specific thing. Uh, but it's, for me, at least, it's not the only path. I like having some of that because it also lends to that back to that credibility piece. You know, showing in galleries and getting press and getting people to see your work that are just walking in is really a, a nice bonus. That's very different than a lot of other ways that you can uh, sell your work. Yeah, I really like the uh, the concept of multiple income streams. You know, uh, uh, I ran into that in two thousand seven when the market crashed and uh, f uh, the four hour work week came out and. Uh, you know, people used to ask me, uh, you know, how do you have job security if you have so many different sort of lines of work? Because I, I run multiple businesses and, and do a lot of contracting. And uh, I said, well, how do you have security if it's all based on one job and only one guy writes you a check? And in the end, <laughs> if things are tough, he cuts you loose. Yeah. Um, for me, the security comes from multiple income streams. So um, I think thinking about galleries in that context, that they're not a, a panacea, they don't solve everything and fill all needs. Uh, and if you if you allow yourself to rest on that, you're staking your career on one bet only. Yeah. Um, which when anybody knows who's ever played bingo, you know, you don't just cover up one number. Come on, you know, you gotta you gotta hedge your bets. So uh, the idea of having other channels uh, seems wise. Yeah, lots of small bets. Exactly. I want to ask you a, a, a more. Uh, on, on the nose question there, what do you do for your own business that you won't hand over to a collaborator like a gallery, e even if it, it were possible? Hmm. I, be more specific. Well, you know, some sometimes a gallery says, I want to be the source, I want to run all your social media, or I want to be this, I want to be the controller and the owner of the email list. Um, I want to be the only website. So I want you to shut down your website. We see this a lot with um, visual artists coming and saying, look, the gallery is saying, look, in exchange for giving it all over to us, we will do it all, but you can't do any of it. Um, and uh, you don't seem to have taken that tactic. You seem to have, or, or have applied that strategy. You seem to have, as you said, made them one channel uh, and one income stream, but you're very much in control of the other channels. So are there aspects of your business operation as a, a visual artist, um, aside from, you know, your company that um, you, you just wouldn't hand over to a, you could, but you wouldn't hand over to a gallery? Oh, yeah. Um, I would say certainly for me, I mean, it's the majority of the work, right? I mean, I'm really trusting them with a small piece. And I think it's a cost benefit analysis, right? You're just going to say, what do I get from this gallery? Well, they've got a cool group of people who spend money on art that I can't access otherwise. That's a certain value. How much work can I sell through them? How much do they want? You know, how often do they want to show my work? What, what's the benefit there? And what am I losing in the process? If I can't show it to anybody else in the world, gee, I'm probably losing some other big opportunities because I know I can develop some of those things myself. So um, I think of it as like they're renting a space and they've got a great audience list. And so there's a certain value to giving them exclusive access to some of my work, but not all of it. And uh, that's going to be an individual decision for everybody. But I think it literally harkens back to what we just said, which is that, you know, that's a gamble. That's a tough gamble. And, you know, you'd never want to put all your eggs in one basket. And so, yeah, I would never put anything that I felt even slightly uncomfortable into the control 
of my gallery, but I also have a great relationship where they're very loose and open-ended about the way they work. They're not one of those guys that's like, you know, give us all this. And, and, you know, I just got an email that was some, you know, through Instagram, somebody said, send us some pictures. I said, okay, well, you know, I'll write you and see what this is. Uh, and they were like, so you pay us this much. And then we do this. And I was like, nope, you know, sorry, that's not the, the process I want to go through. Uh, but that's just me knowing what I can do on my own and the value of that. And certainly spending money to get things I'd be doing myself from this specific outlet isn't valuable. I might hire somebody to do promotion or marketing for me, but that's somebody who works for me, you know, and that's a very different relationship. You know, you're describing it so differently than uh, some of the emerging artists that tell us that every gallerist um, has told them it's all or nothing, uh, that the only thing available is all or nothing. And even some will sort of say, you know, you're not going to work um, with any other gallerist if, uh, if you don't accept that. Um, so, and you're, you're saying that that's mythology. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, here's the crazy part is that like the gallery world is also in turmoil and, and, you know, you look at some of the blue chips that are closing and going to internet only. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of great little pop-up gallery things happening now, but the people that are running those that I've encountered are very cool and very like, just send us the work, we'll put it up, you know, and we'll split it. And it's, it's very laid back. And so I, I think what's hard, right, especially if you're coming right out of school, and I do remember being young and, and hungry and sort of taking anything um, or, or considering that was that, you know, it can be very easy to fall prey uh, to people who sort of dangle this thing in front of you. But the reality is like no success comes from from something that seems easy, even if, you know, like, oh, give us all this and we'll give you this back. It's always hard work. And if you don't think you got to do hard work to get that success, like, you know, there's something there's something going on. Um, ultimately. And so I, I think the hardest thing is trusting the value of what you have and, and respecting that. And if you do, then you're probably not going to like fall prey or allow those people to try to manipulate you. Well, that's really good advice. Um, so just winding down the show, ask you a closing question. You know, uh, Noah, you've done some pretty interesting projects. You know, you did uh, a skull a day, um, which got the Webby Award. You've done uh, a cause project, Anatomy of War, uh, which are sculptures and prints that are cross sections of guns with uh, replicas of human organs uh, inside made of burnt matches. Uh, you've done a 2017 sort of fun project, an exhibit just for dogs called Documenta, Dogumenta, uh, which um, you have a portrait in called The Hand That Feeds. It's a portrait of the inventor of the dog biscuit done in dog biscuits. Uh, so you have all of these ideas that, um, man, they must be great selling points for the concept of creativity itself uh, and, and your business uh, line that is not your art business. But what goals uh, or projects do you have on the horizon for the summer? What's next for you? Is uh, because you know it's here's why I ask Noah. You re referenced earlier that people following your Instagram sort of expect more of the same thing. So if you're air supply and you do all out of love, I want your next twenty two songs to remind me of all out of love. <laughs> you know, and and I don't want uh, I don't definitely don't do something now with uh, a mandolin, you know. Or, or something like that, or crickets. So uh, I'm curious, you don't abide by that. You constantly um, sort of break out of the shell. So so what shells are you going to break out of? Uh, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, I think as an artist uh, and as a, just as a human being, right, like I need uh, I want to live as fully as possible. I want, I want to have sort of a continuous new experience of life and really grasp the most I can. And if I find myself just doing repetitive work, 
uh, I, I'm not having that. I, I, I can continue to work in different media, the same media over and over, but I also like to constantly try new things. And it's a gamble, especially with an audience watching and waiting for certain things that I'm, I'm going to lose some people because I, I don't keep producing the same work. Uh, but it can't be about them. It's got to be about me and sort of having this experience of life and, and making the world a better place uh, as often, you know, through every effort I can make through whatever work I do. Um, that's just my own sort of goal of, of sort of creating more joy and creating a better world. Um, so to that end, uh, you know, I've set some goals for myself each year and I review them quarterly. And, and uh, what's been great is that this year I've already surpassed the goals I'd set for the for the time. And I sort of had to think bigger. And so that's exciting. So there's some, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got lots of project ideas. I've got lots of notes and mostly having the time to get to them and finding the, the funding to help pay for them. And, and so, yeah, I really, what's I guess exciting is that I don't always know what's coming next because when I got opportunity for instance, the show in Times Square, I made something that looks nothing like anything else I'd made recently, but I did that because I, I have the capacity to do that. And I wanted to make the thing that was right for that experience. Um, so yeah, I don't, you know, I have, I have like opportunities looming in terms of doing more large scale painting, which I love doing and I'm not really known for so much. And I'm, I'm, I'm always cultivating more of those opportunities. Uh, and then I've got, you know, more opportunities to do more sculpture and more opportunities to do more sticker work. And yeah, I just, I don't know, I want it all. Well, I, I hope the um, the students in the Clark Healings Fund digital campus or those artists who have signed up for that heard what you said about making goals and checking them quarterly. Um, I think that's fantastic. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Noah's work as an artist, visit Noah Scalin, that's Noah S-C-A-L-I-N.com. And for his work as an art consultant, visit anotherlimitedrebellion.com. For information on the Clark Healings Fund, visit clarkhealingsfund.org. To sponsor our learning programs with an impactful gift of any size, visit clarkhealingsfund.org slash donate. With your gift of any size, we will continue to make inroads with this broadcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Noah. It's been really great having you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Two.